No slam on you. Oh, you're fine. So today we go into some deep territory. Bedar, if you want to bring up uh, the first slide of what we're going into. Starting a new series uh, this week. And it may take a second to come up because it's pretty dense. And it has to do with uh, this idea of God with us. And God with us comes from uh, the word Emmanuel. And I think mostly we get this from uh, Matthew's gospel. Um, because the word Emmanuel, the name Emmanuel, means God with us. What the heck does that mean, God with us? How do we understand that? And so today I want to take you on a journey um, to begin the journey, to get you thinking about what might be ahead. Uh, so today is really preparatory uh, for things that are going to come next week and the following week and the following week. Just to mess with you a little bit. So I meant it uh, when I led us in prayer about asking God and giving God freedom uh, to mess with us, because uh, you may be a little uncomfortable uh, today uh, with some of the things that I'm going to talk about and next week and the week after that. And I'm totally cool with that. Uh, my goal is to help us uh, ask questions, think a little bit more about what this season is, what it represents, what it can be, and see where it can go. Uh, so I start uh, with a couple different readings of Scripture. The first is on the front of your bulletin, and the second is on the back. And uh, let me just read this for you. I condensed this. This is all from Genesis chapter 1. I just cut out uh, some of the lines just for brevity, because uh, I really wanted to see uh, the, the action here. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty, and darkness covered the deep waters. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. And uh, some of the imagery that we have from the Hebrew language is almost like a, a mother a bird, like brooding over the water. Uh, that's the picture that we have there. It doesn't translate well in English. Then God said, let there be light. Then God said, let there be space between the waters to separate the waters of the heavens from the waters of the earth. Then God said, let the waters beneath the sky flow together into one place so dry ground may appear. Then God said, let land sprout with vegetation, every sort of seed-bearing plant and trees that grow seed-bearing fruit. These seeds will then produce the kinds of plants and trees from which they came. Then God said, this is another day, each let there be is another day. Then God said, let lights appear in the sky to separate the day from the night. Let them be signs to mark the seasons, days, and years. Let these lights in the sky shine down on the earth. So technically, the way to count the day started on day one, two, three, four, five, which begs the question, how in the world did the first few days actually be called days <laughs> if you didn't have the measure uh, to do so with, which kind of, well, that's another theological discussion for another day. But anyhow, just wanted to nerd out on that for a moment. Then God said, let the waters swarm with fish and other life. Then God said, let the skies be filled with birds of every kind. And God said, let the earth produce every sort of animal, each producing offspring of the same kind, livestock, small animals that scurry along the ground, and wild animals. And finally, God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us, they will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. Then God looked over all God had made. God saw that it was very good. 
cool part about this story is after each day of creation, God says that was good. And at the tail end, after he's made everything and humanity is that sort of that final piece, he looks at it all and says, now that was very good. This is our origin story. This is our beginning story. We're made in the image of God, and the way God views us is very good. On the back side, uh, I share with you John 1. This is called the prologue of John. And again, I cut out a couple verses just to clean this up a little bit uh, for brevity and also to see the poem. In John 1, uh, all of the words that I'm sharing with you in some translations are italicized to make it clear that these are meant to be uh, poetic, just like the first chapter of Genesis, a poem. And now we get another poem. In the beginning, the word already existed. The word was with God and the word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him and nothing was created except through him. The word gave life to everything that was created and his life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness can never extinguish it. The one who is the true light who gives light to everyone was coming into the world. So I give you these two passages to start us off uh, because both of them are speaking in language that is not particularly clear, right? Uh, they're words, words for things where there can be no words, <laughs> trying to talk about deep concepts of who God is. And the creation story, actually both of them are profoundly good and in contrast with other cultural stories of their day. Remember that other cultural stories of creation and other theologies saw the gods as really not caring a lot about the created order. They're kind of bothered with us pesky human beings who whine a lot. <laughs> and they didn't really want a whole lot to do with it, didn't care about human beings all that much. And then you get this Jewish story of creation where everything is generated from the heart of God by the word of God and everything along the way is good and is actually part of the essence of God, just the way God wanted it. And human beings aren't these little pesky ants at God's picnic, but they're actually beloved, and they're elevated as made in the image of God. It's a beautiful story. This is our origin story. This is our foundation of everything. On the next slide, you're going to get an idea where we're going, because uh, we're starting to ask the question, how do we imagine God with us? And these verses are ancient Jewish people's understanding of, well, how do we even begin to express this with words where there cannot be any words? How do we understand that? And centuries later with Jesus, how do we understand what happened in Jesus? So we're going to look at that part today. Next week, we're going to talk about, well, what about when God seems silent? Does that mean God is absent? Because for the 300 years leading up to Jesus' life, the Jewish people themselves said this is a period of the silence of God because they didn't sense much. The prophets had stopped for whatever reason. And then uh, in a couple of weeks, we're going to take a look at what was new with Jesus. How was, how was he speaking into his time in ways that were provocative to start to get people to think very differently about who God is and what God is trying to do in the world? What is being birthed here <laughs> with the person of Jesus? And on that note, uh, one of the things I've noticed, even with an apocalyptic Advent reading uh, today, is sometimes our focus on Jesus during this time of year is almost exclusively on Jesus came to die. 
there's this uh, song, which I did a little bit of homework on just to get the lyrics and found out uh, it's an Appalachian song. Uh, I wonder as I wander. You know that song? I wonder as I wander out under the sky how Jesus the Savior did come for to die for poor ornery people like you and like I. I wonder as I wander out under the sky. Did that help you knowing it now? <laughs> right. But notice, oh, that was not applause worthy. Believe me. Um, but I, I think the most powerful part of that of that verse isn't, um, isn't the part about Jesus came to die, but the most powerful part of that verse is, I wonder as I wander. <laughs> because we're all wandering. And to have a sense of wonder, that's what I'm hoping to capture. That's what I'm hoping to cultivate with us this season. And to get there, I'm going to uh, borrow a couple of voices, two voices today, and at least one voice continuing on uh, through the weeks ahead. The first voice I want to bring to you, some of you have seen this, uh, some of you have not. Uh, this is a video out of a series that I taught uh, years ago and sometimes repeat. Uh, and this is Brian McLaren. Brian McLaren is a prolific author, uh, speaking into the theological perspective that, uh, that pretty much helps define who we are and how we think about things here at Crosswalk. And uh, he's got some pretty powerful stuff to say. So let's hit it, Dar. I grew up in the church, and I've been a committed Christian since I was a teenager. Not only that, but I served as a church planter and a pastor for 24 years. But in spite of all that, I have a confession to make. Sometimes when I hear people speak about God, I feel like an atheist. The God they speak of, I just don't believe in. A God who loves Christians but hates Muslims, or a God who pours luxuries on the rich but consigns the poor to poverty, or a God who cares about human souls but doesn't give a rip about conserving and protecting our beautiful, fragile planet. So if you ask me, is God real? I first have to ask which God we're talking about and what do you mean by God? Do you mean an old man with a long white beard who's making a list and checking it twice or a chess master moving pieces around on a divine chessboard or a cosmic clockmaker who set the world in motion but now keeps his distance or maybe a vague fog that descends on certain people. When we ask if God is real, we also have to ask what we mean by real. Is God real the same way a physical object like a frying pan or a toaster or a cinder block is real? Or is God real the way love or freedom or hope is real? Or maybe God is real in a way we can't actually conceptualize but can only imagine. Now, I think that word imagine is central to speaking about God because whenever we speak of God, we compare God to things we know, and those things become images for God. So we might use physical or functional images for God, imaging God as a rock or a shield or a fortress, or we might use personal and relational images for God, like a mother, father, friend, or king. Or we might use mysterious images of power and wonder for God, like water or fire or wind or light. We have no way to speak or even think about God apart from images like these. 
In fact, the idea of the Trinity, so central to traditional Christian understandings of God, takes a great deal of imagination. Through history, people have used images like three dancers moving in a circle, or three leaves of a clover, or three states of water to tr try to convey that one God can exist in three persons, or that three persons can constitute one God. But our use of images for God puts us in a constant struggle because if we aren't careful, we over-identify God with the image itself. So for example, we might speak of God as king, but do we actually mean God is a literal king sitting on a literal throne upon his own literal gluteus maximus? <laughs> or if we speak of Jesus sitting at God's right hand, do we think God has two literal hands left and right? If we speak of God's voice, do we think God has literal vocal cords that vibrate with literal breath, expelled from literal lungs that breathe literal oxygen? I mean, when you begin to face these complexities, you realize why Christian thinkers and mystics have created two technical terms to describe two ways of thinking and speaking about God. In the cataphatic tradition, we emphasize that our images and words really can help us to conceive of God and relate to God. It means that we can talk about God. But in the apophatic tradition, we remind ourselves that God can never be reduced to images or contained by words. It means that reverent, loving silence is sometimes the most eloquent form of theology. When we hold these two traditions in proper balance, we keep seeking God, reaching out to God, and relating to God, always remembering that God can never be fully grasped in hand or captured in a box or stuffed into the hip pocket of our tiny little minds. Some people overestimate how much their language can capture and contain God. They lose the needed balance in the direction of excessive certainty. And their faith resembles a fortress built on a mountain. Whether they're believers or atheists, these folks are equally certain of their own viewpoint, equally dismissive of everybody else's, and equally impervious to learning something new. Life for them becomes a war zone, and faith for them is reduced to a fight about who's more right. Other people make the opposite mistake. Their faith resembles an imaginary castle floating up in the clouds. Everything's highly speculative and theoretical and academic and very far removed from real life and daily experience. If fortress people reduce God to concrete facts, cloud people reduce God to foggy opinions. If fortress people turn faith into a vicious fight about who's more right, cloud people reduce faith to a kind of inconsequential leisure activity, like doing crossword puzzles or collecting refrigerator magnets or being wine connoisseurs. In between these extremes, the rest of us need a third alternative. We don't want faith to be a fight, and we don't want faith to be a fog. We want our faith to be a quest, a quest for God and with God. For those of us who live in the zone of wonder and curiosity, faith and doubt, desperation and hope, maybe we could say that for us, faith is like a ship that we're sailing on. Our beliefs are like planks in the hull. And the trials and disappointments and enigmas of life are like the storms and icebergs and reefs that sometimes threaten to sink us.
Sometimes old planks spring a leak and have to be replaced, often when we're far from shore. We might say that God is the source and the goal of our quest, and that God is the mysterious sea upon which we sail, and that God is the wind we raise our sails to receive. We might say that fellowship is what we experience with fellow travelers on our ship of faith. We might even say that theology is the necessary maintenance of the hull and decks and sails so that our ship stays seaworthy for generations to come. In all of this, of course, we need to remember that maintenance of the ship is not the point. The quest is our experience of and with God. The great French philosopher Blaise Pascal said it simply and well. We are embarked. In other words, we aren't just theorizing about a hypothetical journey or planning a potential voyage for someday in the future. We're already at sea, actually underway in the wild adventure of sun and wind and wave and tide. I can't help but think of the way Jesus made sure to lead his disciples off of dry land and out into the deep as if to say, pay attention, friends. This is what the life of faith is like. Sometimes on my journey, I've experienced God in extraordinary ways in dramatic surprises or soul-expanding insights or unexplainable mystical encounters. But more often, I felt God's reality in the simple encouragement of a friend, in the gentle inspiration of a sermon, or in the familiar ritual of the Eucharist. And I'd be less than honest if I didn't also say that at times I found myself in the spiritual doldrums, cast adrift and wondering if the wind would ever blow again. But through it all, I find myself between unfathomable depths above me and unfathomable depths below me, captured by the call of the sea and the thrill of adventure, which are for me beautiful images for God, whose grandeur and wonder surpass all words. So I wonder, do you find yourself more compelled by the Capophatic tradition that we can speak confidently of God? If so, what are the images that work best for you and that mean the most for you? Or maybe you're more compelled by the apophatic tradition that at the end of the day, human language always fails and silent, reverent wonder is our best theology. How do you try to reach that healthy balance where you use images that help you explore and search for God, but never become over-dependent on them? How are you embarked on a journey of seeking for God and keeping the quest alive? On the inside of your bulletin, uh, you have those images uh, that are on the screen. And I wanted to provide these to you kind of as homework uh, for you to be thinking about these things. On the left side, with all the cartoon stuff and drawings, you have the cataphatic or expressions of a cataphatic approach to God. And on the right side, you have the apophatic, uh, where there are no words uh, really to describe, where it's just the mystery and sitting in that kind of reverence. 
And a couple of things I think are important to note here. First, I think it's important to identify which of the images have been helpful for you in your faith development, because you are, whether or not you realize it, you've always been on a faith journey. It's always been a part of you. Uh, it's just whether or not you've known how to articulate it or imagine it and imagining it in the very best ways to put a picture on it, to understand. And I think it's also good to honor uh, where these things are, even if you know now that you no longer uh, hold them in the same place as you once did. So for me, uh, there was a time in my life uh, where a Heavenly Father uh, was very, very important to me, and especially that Abba part, uh, recognizing that there's this daddy, you know, uh, part, and all that that meant uh, that could, could, even though I had a good dad, that could even be greater uh, than, than that. And that meant so much to me in that particular time in my life. It meant so much to me. And yet I understand that God is not gendered, and God is not a man, uh, and God is not a person that, in that kind of limiting kind of a way. And there are other images here, too, that I can resonate with. Uh, when I'm on the street talking to people, I hear a lot about the man upstairs. <laughs> and that's a very comfortable way for people to talk about God. Uh, did you know that there's a biblical reference that talks about God as a mother bear? Maybe you didn't even know these. All these are biblical and some, to some degree. Some are more philosophical, like God is a watchmaker, but uh, certainly that evidence is there. God is potter. I remember uh, more than 20 years ago in my ministry, uh, that was a very important image, and we had songs to go with it uh, that were really, really powerful and important of the day. It's good to honor these different spaces in our lives, but at the same time, it's good to also give ourselves the freedom to imagine beyond those original constructs. It's also important for us to like literally say out loud, this has been a meaningful way for me to think about God, to put it out on the table. And the reason why it's important is because the way our brains work, we really truly cannot entertain any new ideas about just about anything until we first say, this is what I believe about everything. Once we know what we know, then we can find out what we don't know. But until we make that first step, it's very, very, very difficult for any real new insights to have any chance in our minds. And this is partly why Jesus taught the way he did. He was provocative. He asked questions. He used parables, which drive people nuts because they're not, you know, like a science textbook where it just spells it right out. It makes you wonder, makes you think. The other reason I think this is important homework for you to do, to, to look at the cataphatic and consider the apophatic. And the apophatic, by the way, uh, one, of the, one of the great, uh, I'm going to mess this quote up, but Meister Eckhart, who was a Christian mystic centuries ago, he talked about, you know, at the end of the day, we're really all atheists, and we need to lead with that. And his reasoning for saying we should all be atheists is because as soon as we say something about God, defining God, we've immediately limited God. <laughs> and so back to Brian's song, uh, we need to be at that place where we recognize that even as we're speaking about God, there are no words. And so to be atheistic is to say we can't claim to know too much, which is such a freeing place to be. The, the final reason why I really encourage you uh, to play with this and imagine it and journal about it, think about it, uh, is because uh, Richard Rohr, uh, he just happens to be 
uh, in line with my thinking this week. So thank you, Richard Rohr, for thinking that way and being in line uh, with, uh, <laughs> with what we're doing. But he had this, this great little chunk in his devotional this morning uh, that talked essentially about this, that if the God that we uh, believe in is good and loving, the followers of a good and loving God are generally good and loving. Uh, when the God that we believe in is generally inclusive and creative and generous, the people who follow that good and creative and generous God are often marked by goodness, generosity. On the contrary, the opposite is also true. That when our primary view of God is punitive, angry, wrathful, the followers of that God are generally punitive, angry, wrathful. So this matters. And to help us think things through a little bit more, and uh, you're going to hear from this voice uh, in uh, the coming weeks as well. Uh, he's a new friend of mine that I met last summer at a conference. His name is Andrew M. Davis. Uh, he's been an editor of a couple of books. Uh, one I'll make uh, known to you more next week. Um, I think the guy is absolutely crazy brilliant. Uh, I think he might be one of these up-and-coming uh, theologians in our time, uh, and I think you'll get a pretty good picture why I think so uh, when you hear him in his clip. So let's check it out. I'm no longer running away from the, the, the term philosopher. I've had to come to terms with it and just say I'm a philosopher. I'm a theologian. I'm a very curious person. And it's funny, in retrospect, I see this curiosity being a part of my, my upbringing. I was raised in Santa Rosa, California, and grew up in the redwoods of Occidental in the West County near the ocean. And can remember early on, you know, sitting on hilltops with my friends and looking at the stars and just asking curious sorts of questions. Uh, so I was full of wonder. And the context of, of all this wonder for me was, was Christian faith because I was you know, raised in the evangelical side of Christian faith. And so that was the context, if you want, in which the wonder was, was taking place. And um, Whitehead has this great quote. Maybe we'll get, we'll get into Whitehead later where he says, um, he's talking about philosophy beginning in wonder. And he says, and in the end, when philosophic thought has done its best, the wonder remains. And so I think of myself uh, as one that has remaining wonder. And it's, it's developed and grown in different ways into biblical studies at Point Loma Nazarene University and philosophy and theology at Claremont, and then into a PhD in, in religion and process philosophy. So I'm a wondrous, curious person, as I'm sure you are. And uh, in brief, that would, that would be a few, few ways I'd describe myself. So, you know, yeah, I, I, as I mentioned, my upbringing was more in line with the, at least certainly on my mother's side, the evangelical world. You know, I like to say that my mother's faith was sort of uh, the foundation of my own, and my father's sort of intellect was also the foundation of my own, and so both of those struggled together in a certain way. Um, so there's much that I appreciate about the evangelical world, um, but in terms of my intellectual journey and, and working with the church, which is largely with the host team and, and with helping install values, if you want, in the youth ministry and, and, what, and whatnot, I found myself naturally led to questions of, of philosophy. And of course, the Christian tradition, it's wonderful that it hasn't shied away from those questions at all. I mean, obviously, those of us who are maybe uh, a bit annoyed or reactionary to the evangelical world have reason for, for having those views because 
sometimes questions are shied away from that are really intriguing for people, whether about God or evil or sexuality or, um, you know, you name it. So I found myself in, with a desire to move into a context where, or, or a vision of Christian faith where those questions were actually welcomed. And of course, the Christian tradition is a current of conversation. Uh, and I think if we forget that, we, we find ourselves being far too confident sometimes and also shutting out dialogue and discussion that should be a part of the current that's still flowing uh, to this day. So a very processual metaphor there. <laughs> And again, I'll, I'll give a nod to the, to the intellectual breadth of the Christian tradition, too, because way back when, Christians were always speaking about, not always, but at least the thought leaders in, of ancient times were talking about what God's doing beyond just earth, if you want, right? Beyond just a single creation, right? And some made the statements that an infinite God does nothing less than create infinitely, right? And that what God creates is, is of value. In a deep sense. So I think Christians for far too long have had a very, we've, we've tended to have a narrow vision that God is purely concerned with what's going on here in a deep way. But if we're to take the, the thrust of the scientific adventure seriously, far more is going on that, that is mind-blowing in a deep sense. You know, by all, uh, by most uh, common cosmological standards, the universe seemed to, in some sense, expand or come into being, that's a debate, 13.8 billion years ago. So again, the time scales are totally inconceivable. Some argue that there is epochs before the Big Bang. Some argue that there will be afterward. You know, uh, we look at the whole history of the evolutionary advance, uh, emergence and the <laughs> decay of dinosaurs, and then uh, uh, creatures like ourselves who emerge and ask the question. It's, it's incredible to think about the cosmological journey. And so God is not up to nothing. And what God is up to involves us, but transcends us. It involves our planet and it transcends the planet. Um, and hypothetically, there is no reason why there shouldn't be, in my estimation, shouldn't be other creations, right? Other beings of all different kinds who reflect the image of God in their own way as well. Of course, this raises questions about whether there's a quote-unquote, as one scholar put it, a planet-hopping Jesus. But that would be, <laughs> be sort of interesting in a way. Um, it also raises questions about, well, if, we, if the Christian narrative is based on our world falling into sin, well, what about another world that didn't fall into sin, right? So, I mean, this, it, it's sort of an ongoing conversation. So, cosmologically, the Christian tradition has always been engaged, um, and that's uh, often missed in the narrow sort of fight between science and religion. Um, but you need a larger understanding of God, and we need a more spiritually open understanding of science, and I think they can be seen as partners dancing that sort of tangle as well. Um, I will say that we, the Center for Process Studies where I work, we're developing a conference in May that looks precisely at the relevance of, of these sort of questions to process philosophy and how uh, questions of astrobiology, life beyond Earth, how those two uh, domains of knowledge and inquiry can, can come together in an interesting way. So, so just as uh, God is perhaps not confined to Jesus, neither is God confined to one world or to one universe for that matter. Um, you know, but there's much speculation in all that, so <laughs> I wouldn't necessarily speak definitively. With everything that you've learned and where you are in your life right now, 
Uh, how do you enter into this Advent season in a meaningful way for, for Andrew Davis? Yeah, yeah, great question. Um, I would say I do so out relationally, you know? I do so uh, in a community that is, in a Christian community that is uh, in memory of all that this season represents, right? The, the, the coming of God, the very advent of God. But I have not wanted to lose the fact that the advent is also uh, adventuring and that it continues. And that that what I see in the life of Christ is a call towards an adventure with God uh, in and through your own life. And so it's not just something that happens in the past any more than, than creation is, right? It's not a one and done event back there somewhere, but that God is still up ahead of you in the future. And that has to be the case. God is coming toward you, right? God doesn't come toward you from the past. <laughs> God is up ahead as the ground of possibility coming towards you with novelty for your own life and for the world. And so I sit in uh, with my community and I think about Advent in terms of adventure. And I think about the ways in which I have either, uh, you know, accepted or disregarded that adventure of the previous year. And I, I sit and try to remind myself of what's still to come up ahead and how I can, how I can be a part of it. So, um, it's a struggle and it's a call to adventure. And I think that's what God is ultimately up to in the person of Christ and the unfolding of a cosmic universe of potentially infinite scope. <laughs> God is an adventurous God and able and wanting to do new things, as the scriptures say, behold, I do something new. Individually in our lives, cosmically with the universe. And so I think about adventure. That's what I've been talking, focusing on most recently as the season comes. Adventure is something up ahead that comes toward you. So, and that's like undetermined that. in a certain way, right? It doesn't necessarily have a fixed, yeah. fully determined end. Right. Um, and so yeah. there's something to trust in the process. And I think that's an important and hard thought, but it's something to, to focus on in this season for me. I just love that way of thinking about our theological development and at a time like this when we're starting this season to wonder, uh, could there be an adventure ahead of us? And that's a hopeful thing and a scary thing. Some of us would just rather keep things just as they are in the cataphatic tradition. <laughs> don't mess with it, man. Don't, don't, don't prod my foundation here. And yet, what if, what if there's more? What if there's more to discover? What if there's a bigger way of thinking about all of this? And as any adventure would imply, there's excitement and there should be a little anxiety as we do this. Uh, but I hope you'll be up for it as we consider what God with us might mean. Next week, we're going to go a little bit deeper, a lot of bit deeper, uh, in a um, term that is more familiar around crosswalk called panentheism in contrast to theism, which uh, most of the culture holds. And we're going to take a look at what that is. And we're going to do that by looking at a few characters in the birth narrative, according to Luke, uh, that had their minds blown about what God was up to. They didn't even know they were signing up for an adventure, <laughs> but they were alive and God was alive. And as, uh, as Andrew said, God is not up to nothing, uh, but God was up to something 
And these people uh, were invited into that something, uh, which was remarkable and terrifying all at the same time. And yet, in retrospect for each of them, I'm sure they would say, so worth it. So we embark on this new season of Advent uh, that I hope you'll join me in, join God in, uh, and I hope that by the end of it, we will have discovered so much more uh, than we even entertained. And my hunch is that, you, that we will not discover just the things that I think we should discover, uh, but trusting that God is in the whole process. Uh, I'm just excited to find out how God is messing with you and how you will speak back into the community about how you're experiencing this adventure on your side. So that's where we're headed. Uh, should be fun. Think about this, uh, what's been meaningful, honor it, respect it, don't let it limit you. Know that there are stakes in the game, uh, that who we are and how we live our life uh, is a reflection to some degree of how we envision God. And therefore, it's very important uh, that we learn and allow that to grow. Let's pray together. We'll end with the Lord's Prayer here in a moment, but uh, let me close this time together in prayer. So God, as we enter into this uh, Advent season, this adventuring, uh, this wonder period, this waiting period, um, may, may, may we have uh, just a real excitement about what is possible as we take time to reflect, wonder anew, admit uh, that we're all wanderers and we're all searching for metaphors to understand who you are and how you operate in the world. Give us the capacity to respect the ones that have worked. Give us the freedom, God, and nudge us to hold on loosely to those images as uh, they cannot, they cannot fully express your nature because there are no words. So God, be with us, truly be with us, uh, that we would have cause for greater rejoicing uh, as we march toward that cradle and celebrate the birth of Jesus. To that end, uh, we pray the prayer uh, that was an Advent prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Thank you so much for coming today. Hope you had a good experience, and we will see you here next week. Take care. Hey, Bill.